Hi, I'm Murdoch Gaddy, and thanks for listening to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Hi, I'm Murdoch Gaddy and welcome back to The Rate of Change. The Rate of Change is a podcast which explores the ever-shifting momentum of financial markets through the eyes of the leading managers in wealth management. In today's Rockcast, I'm really excited to speak with Josh Manning, the founder and portfolio manager at Manning Asset Management. Manning Asset Management is an Australian-based fund manager that specializes in investments in the private debt markets. They have an all-weather strategy approach that targets an interest and income return within the fund of 5% above the cash rate. This fund is income generating, pays distributions monthly, and has consistently delivered 5% in income over the past six years. I think you will find Josh is an insightful speaker, really knows his stuff in the private lending space. If you like what you hear, please reach out to me with your thoughts and questions at mgatti at ywm.com.au. Before considering any investments, we encourage you to both listen to the disclaimer at the end of the Rockcast and seek professional advice. We would like to reiterate that this Rockcast isn't designed nor is it intended to be specific advice. I hope you really enjoy the discussions as much as I did, so relax and enjoy the conversation. Josh Manning, welcome to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Thank you for having me. Why don't we uh, start things off by you telling us a little bit about who Josh Manning is, your background and your journey into financial markets? Excellent. Uh, So yeah, Josh Manning, I'm the Portfolio Manager at Manning Asset Management. We're Australian Fixed Income and Credit Manager. So my journey into financial services, I guess, started when I left university uh, lucky enough to work at a number of institutions like Macquarie Bank and then more recently a very large asset consultant called Jana, which is advisors of many of the largest institutional investors in Australia. The The journey into Manning Asset Management really started back in 2015. I was working for Jana at the time and I, I saw a gap in investor portfolios uh, and that gap was really in that um, some in assets that you can put into portfolios which genuinely do perform through the cycle. So genu- genuinely have that capital stability attributes, but can uh, deliver an attractive income-based return. So it can really play a very valuable role in adding diversification, complementing existing sort of stocks, bond, property type portfolios. Um, but but really delivering on that income type objective. And there's a number of assets that historically played that role, but I felt like there wasn't really enough. You know, portfolio is quite barbelled, sort of low risk and, and high risk. So there was a real gap there. And at the same time, I also saw the changes in financial markets, specifically in the banking sector and the non-bank sector, and that creating investment opportunities that I personally was very excited about investing in and started investing in. And thought there was a real gap for a specialist fund manager to really focus on that sector. And there was born Manning Asset Management. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So with the landscape, that's a really interesting one. So 
when did you see this actually change? Was it after the GFC? Was it most recently, like with 2017, where the bank said, look, we don't want the risk on our book anymore? Like, mm. what, what specifically in the in the landscape saw this opportunity? And, and why did you think a fund was best instead mm. of, like, just going private or, you know? What, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, like it's quite interesting. Like when I when I started or was starting the business, I did a couple of research trips to the the US, where the banking system has evolved and changed, and and, and very different to the Australian banking system in terms of a number of factors. But one very important one is the split between the traditional banks and the so-called non-banks. So they are lenders, they directly compete, but they're regulated quite differently for a variety of reasons. Most notably, those non-banks can't accept deposits. So they're a different construct than a bank um, and therefore have different regulations around them. In the US, about half of the loans are originated by banks and half by non-banks. Whereas you compare that to Australia, and while it is changing, it's still largely about 90% of loans originated by Australian banks and 10%, but very quickly growing or uh, uh, by the non-banks. And those non-banks are an interesting space because there are some really interesting credit and fixed income opportunities that those non-banks offer in order to fund the loans that they originate. And I saw that really in its infancy, but having a quite a high degree of sophistication. And I thought that is an area that really is going to boom. And it is particularly attractive from that investor perspective that I talked about before. And I, and I sort of married those two up and thought, okay, this is, this is really going to be a, a booming sector. And I don't think it's sort of like a point in time I think the regulations there's a lot of changes in regulations that have continued to 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 support the non-banks and I didn't see that abating um, so I yeah as I say I thought there was a really attractive opportunity for a broad cross-section of investors to access these opportunities and the fund was designed to extract that yeah, very nice. So when you say the fund was uh, developed to extract that, what, which loans essentially you know was attractive for you? Like, are you looking at corporate loans? Are you looking at retail loans? You know, mm. what, what specifically? Uh, you know, in an ideal world, if someone knocked on your door and said, "Look, we would love some money," um, you know, who who would you like to lend to? Like, what does your avatar, I suppose, <laughs> of uh, your ideal? Uh, you know, borrow I look like. Yeah, so I think that the sort of founding principles of the business is what are we trying to do for investors? Yes, there's all sorts of consumer business, structured finance, you know, every type of loan under the sun, but, but what are we really trying to do for investors who we work for? And that is we're trying to give them a asset or a fund that we genuinely believe will perform through the cycle. So that means it's genuinely when we enter an asset, we think even in an adverse environment, we are going to get 100% of our money back when we when the loan matures. And that naturally puts a lid on the types of assets we can go into. So we can't go into things that are speculative, that are you know high risk, um, you know, 
areas that are, you know, sectors that are very cyclical. You know, we've talked about mining before, property development's another really good one where in the good times it's good, in the bad times there is issues. And that just naturally creates a risk aversion to those sectors. You're looking at from the other side of the thing, we're also not looking for a government bond that's delivering one, two, three percent. You know, we really think there's a really attractive place where you can be in between those, delivering a higher rate of return than and those very low risk, very long duration bonds, but not having to go right up the risk spectrum into these some of very cyclical, high return but high risk products. So that means that if we want to play in that middle space where we do provide an attractive rate of return, but that capital stability, then we really need to find things that are typically asset-backed. So we've, we've got security over a property or an asset or something like that. They need to be very sensibly structured um, in terms of how we actually manage those loans and, and making sure there's the right governance around them. Um, we need to make sure that there's a, a strong alignment of interest, that we're not sort of pulling in opposition to the borrower. Um, and I think most importantly that the loan makes sense for the borrower. You know, there's a lot of sort of lending out there done on an asset basis where people just think, well, I've got an asset there, it doesn't matter. Kind of if the loan makes sense, I'm secure. Um, you know, I think some of those attributes um, are troublesome. And, and, and as I say, we like to stay away from that. So it's really sensibly structured loans where we have a strong asset backing to good borrowers where we know with a pretty high level of conviction that we will get our money back even in an adverse scenario that that's kind of high level what we're trying to where, where we play yeah so on that as well if you think about the type of people which you're lending to right so with the portfolio now like how many loans are actually in the portfolio and what size parcels are you looking at in what would the average be or what would the minimum you lend to is there any max many maximum what, what would that be yeah so there's definitely maximums and that's because we want to make sure there's you know sufficient diversification in the portfolio and there's not so-called concentration risks we don't have a big position to one particular borrower what what we think is the really attractive place to be is in in purchasing pools of these loans so this isn't just having one million dollar loan to somebody but for example in the in the consumer loan space there might we might buy you know 10 million dollars worth of numerous underlying 30 40,000 personal loans to buy a car for a variety of different reasons but these very, very diversified pools of loans where you don't have the concentration risk and there's a lot of sort of structural protections when we purchase these um, asset pools that provides that level of capital stability. So I, I don't know what the stat is. I think there's about 8,000 different underlying exposures in the portfolio today, um, which is great from a diversification perspective. But the, the key thing that we're really looking for is that what like what are the capital preservation characteristics of this transaction and when we stress test it looking at a number of different historical and future looking scenarios do we have that conviction around being able to realize our capital on time and and that's the real test that we put it through so you talk to essentially the capacity to have uh an investment that can withstand the cycles right so mm -hmm. what happens 
if you have uh, an asset which you lend to in the portfolio, that's suppose sours, right? Mm. You know, something happens. You know, what, what's the what's the what's the risks around that, or how do you look at mitigating against that risk? You know, do you take is it only first mortgages? Is it second? Is it syndicated? Like, you know, do you mind giving our listeners a bit of color of yeah, sure. You know, how you they protect against those interests? Yeah. So, so, so the thing about us is that we we're not just a property development or a consumer loan specialist, we have capabilities right across the spectrum. So we look all across the different assets, consumer loans, business loans, property-based loans, and we're able to essentially pick the eyes out of the market. So each of those sectors are unique. So so one sector that we really like is um, bridging mortgages. So these are typically a 65% loan-to-value ratio. So the building might be worth a million dollars. They're wanting a loan of $650,000, so 65% LVR. It's a 12-month term, um, director's guarantees or personal guarantees, the strong alignment of interest, first mortgage security over the property, no construction. You know They're not knocking it down and rebuilding it. Um, so we like those transactions because, firstly, alignment of interest, there's an asset there that we're lending conservatively against. Um, but, you know scenarios do occur that there might be an unforeseen personal issue with the borrower and that's where all the other risk mitigants that we put in really come into play so firstly in that particular scenario we have got a first ranking security over the property so if in the event they don't pay there is protections there for us to obviously um, compel the borrower to, to realize that security to repay our loan um, from a portfolio perspective, though, we also think very much around, well, what happens if that security, there's an issue in selling it or whatever? And that's why we also then have a second line of defense, which is very much around taking small chunks of many, many loans so that even in the event there's some idiosyncratic risk with that one property and they have trouble selling it or they don't get as much as what we think they should, from a portfolio perspective, investors are very much protected because it's a very small part of the aggregate position. And that's why over our sort of six and a half years, we've never had a negative return from, from credit. So it's been very robust by spreading your bets, adding that diversification, having a security that you can rely on, um, and having that strong alignment in the interest. And, and also, to be honest, it's very much around just being active in managing these things. You know, when we see there's an issue, we're on it straight away. I mean, this is all that we do. Um, and that's, you know, the sort of the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Um, and that's very much how we work. Yeah, it's a good bit of color around that. Um, so regarding uh, duration, so a number of our clients really do like this lending space, both privately. A lot of our clients lend privately and also in markets. They always find uh, durations the biggest thing because, you know, different risk profiles, as you can appreciate. So we're seeing a lot of people out there or a lot of uh, fund managers off, uh, looking for about 18 months, like lock-in, you know, mm. quarterly, mm. and uh, a couple out there for three years and a couple of the private ones uh, substantially longer, <laughs> but phenomenal infrastructure assets. Um, uh, are available. So the the biggest question that I always get asked is how do you manage to have your redemptions only one month? Like yeah. you can be in and then <clears throat> out again within a month. Um, how do you m make that work? So there's, there's, I guess there's 
yeah, we have our own views on lockups, um, and I think it is they are appropriate in some circumstances. Uh, I do sometimes questions the motives of the manager and locking in that capital. But outside of that, there's really three lines of defense that we incorporate into how we construct the portfolio to give investors that liquidity. So the first one is there's thousands of these underlying loans that are constantly being repaid. Uh, So on an ongoing basis, we're having money being returned to us and we're reinvesting that with new client monies that is coming in. If there is a redemption and an investor wants some money out, um, we can simply just invest less um, to, to meet those redemptions. And in our, our six and a half year track record, we've never not met a redemption even through what's been quite a sort of turbulent time over that period. The other feature of the fund is that we also keep target of 5% cash holdings. So that's cash at banks. So that also promotes natural liquidity there to, to, to pay for um, redemptions um, as and when they occur. And then from a third perspective, we're also very careful in how we sell the fund. This isn't an enhanced cash fund. We're not saying to people, come in, come out month by month. This is very much a core holding invested portfolios. And we've been very deliberate in attracting investors that see it not as a piggy bank that can be raided whenever they want. Um, but if they need liquidity, there is liquidity there. So I think those three things are, are very deliberate strategies by us, but do create that monthly ability to either come in or, or, or redeem from the fund. So since we're talking about the structure of the fund, um, one cheat question we always love to ask uh, is essentially how are you remunerated? Because what we find by that question is uh, an investor understanding exactly how you're remunerated means you're you know how you're aligned with the fund mm. right so how does the invest uh, the remuneration structure work within the fund so there's there's really a few elements to it um, so firstly all our fees are fully disclosed there's no below the line fees there's no sort of you know um, questionable tactics by us around the fees we very much believe in that transparency the fees that we charge is really broken down into two components. But at the starting point, we believe for a fund targeting the RBA cash rate plus 5% net of fees, um, a fee of 1% we think is fair. We think that's the right level that balances the effort involved first um, and the value we create to investors. Um, that That's kind of the natural balance that's the right level of fees so when we started the funds we spoke to a lot of investors both small and large and what it was common is that they liked two things about a fee they like to know that you can keep the lights on with a base fee but secondly they want to know there's a, an alignment there so we've got the fee essentially split in half so it's half a percent base fee uh, and then 10 percent performance fee over the RBA cash rate. So essentially, if we if we deliver the RBA cash rate plus 5%, we're getting 10% of that 5%, which is another 50 basis points. And then there's a small expense recovery fee that just pays for some of the trust costs. So we think it's quite compelling because it does create alignment, but also gives the business stability that it needs to hire top talent, reinvest in infrastructure, technology, etc. 
Um, we we're talking off air, and, uh, and I really hope you can elaborate more on this point um, regarding that structure. You were saying um, that you don't really have that high of a, a, a watermark in, in general um, because of what you're trying to achieve. You, you were saying something along the lines of, uh, if you put that in the current vehicle, then um, it might incentivize to take more risk in the portfolio, which is not what you're currently about. So do you mind just giving a bit of color around that? Yeah, so I believe it was in relation to talking about where the wa the high watermark set. So having the benchmark that we outperform of the RBA cash trade can be seen as quite low. People say, well, why is it so low? And I guess for us, it's not why is it so low it's you, you don't want to have it too high because some people will say well it should be over cash plus five you should get a higher performance fee and for us all that does is incentivize additional risk taking when we're near cash plus five because we think well if we're just a bit over cash plus five and get all these great performance fees and i think we've spent a lot of time thinking how do you promote the right mindset right from inception to deliver the right results. And, and one thing we thought about is how do you fairly sort of deliver an outcome for the business and our shareholders, but also make sure that we're not influenced in our investment decision-making to, to, to think about that. So I don't know if that really answers it, but I guess it's making sure that we're not doing anything that incentivizes risk-taking because that's exactly against what the sort of core philosophy of the business is. Yeah, thank you very much for elaborating on that. Let's let's do a bit of a pivot to macroeconomics. Always the fun part of the conversation. There's a lot happening in the industry right now. Past two years, huge amount of stimulus has been pumped in, then they uh, you know, took it all back. And uh, there's a lot of commentators saying around town that if they increase rates by a particular amount, you know, Armageddon or might be not so bad. So what's your opinion on the the uh, rising rate environment we're currently seeing? And, um, you know, how may that impact uh, who you're lending against and the fund? Mm. I think, that, yeah, I think you're exactly right. There's sort of two elements to that. There's sort of a commentary on what we think of the environment, and then the second is sort of implications for the fund. So if I can break it down accordingly, I think people are very, um, you know, the, the reason why there's such rapid increase in cash rates globally, and each country is unique in the factors that they face, but is because there's such strong economic activity and growth, and typically such low levels of unemployment. So... The environment is actually, from a fundamentals, actually very, very strong, and they're trying to cool that down. Whether there's a policy mistake and they get too aggressive in any one country and that has a domino effect, or, or, or globally, we, we, you know, central banks get too aggressive on managing inflation, that, that's a separate question. But right now, we've got great fundamentals for lending. And you can see that in a lot of the statistics where we've got very low rates of unemployment, you know, 3.5%. You've had a big shift from part-time to full-time employment, um, very strong um, rates of employment growth for from females locally. Um, so there's a lot of very good signals to say the employment market is very, very strong. And that's that is very good for us. If you then look out and, and sort of think about some of the other factors, you know, you've got declining consumer sentiment, um, business sentiment, investments. 
you know, some of those sort of four-looking indicators are a little bit more worrisome. So I guess from where we are, it's a very good environment, but it does highlight that we're at a little bit of a turning point now where we've had very strong level of stimulus, we've had very accommodated policy. The, the new environment isn't going to be the same as that. And I think that just warrants that additional level of caution. Um, I think there's some interesting things, particularly that's going to happen globally. You know, everyone's very sort of fixated on the US and and where they're, they're at. I think Europe's going to be very interesting. After a long period of zero interest rates, they're talking about potentially 150 basis point of, of cash rate increases before the end of the year. So that that's going to be quite a big shift for them. And we can already see other areas of Asia lifting rates aggressively. So from a macro perspective, I think you can't look backwards to think about what rhymes going forwards. I think it's a new environment. And I think you need investors need to be very cognizant of that and perhaps not just apply historical asset allocations, but think more diligently about that. From a portfolio perspective, uh, how we're thinking about it, um, well, in January, we produced a client note and we talked about the different scenarios that we've been thinking through, stress testing, modeling, etc. One of them was a high interest rate, high inflationary environment. And that scenario is no longer a scenario, it's very much reality. So we've done a lot of work in positioning the portfolio um, for these rising interest rates. And you can see, you know, this month we've delivered 55 basis points. So the benefits of that planning have very much come through into investor returns. Um, I think going forward, we're, we're very cognizant of the risk, we're very careful around that. But fundamentally, a higher level of interest rates is good for us because it delivers typically a higher rate of return to our investors. So it's a very favorable environment if you make sure you're well prepared for it in advance. And I think we've, you know, we've done a reasonable job at doing so. And that leads me into my last question. Um, how long do you think this uh, beautiful opportunity of uh, what the bank has created by essentially saying we do not want this uh, level of risk on our books, you know, fund mm. managers, please take it. They've just opened up a door and a number of people like yourself have stepped in and our clients are very happy about it. But uh, how long do you think they're going to keep this portal, I suppose, yeah. open for? Do you think it's going to be closed anytime soon or what, what do you think? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think there's two things and I might challenge you on one thing there, Murdoch, and that is going, going back to the 65% LVR mortgage, it's, I don't think that is particularly high risk. I think uh, when you have an existing house, a, a common house in a common suburb where there's a high degree of liquidity, yes, the property market's going through some changes, but at 65% LVR, I think, I think you'd pretty readily find a buyer for that type of property. So I don't think it's around they're pushed outside the banking system because they're high risk. I think they're pushed outside the banking system because people um, typically, they want, they want two things. They want flexibility and they want speed. Right, so the a lot of the borrowers that are going to these non banks, they're happy to pay away for greater flexibility because their situation might be unique, or most commonly in this sector we're seeing people are buying a property and they you know part of them getting a, a good 
a good deal on a property is that they can move very quickly. They can move quicker than other people that are bidding in the process and therefore secure the property, potentially at a discount, warranting paying higher interest rates. So I'm not convinced it's pushed outside the banking system. I just think maybe the banking system doesn't suit all participants and therefore it creates this opportunity. In terms of how long the the windows open, um, you know, lending has been around since the start of civilization. You know, it's it's you know the, obviously the stamping of coins and and so forth. But but around that time there was you know elements of, of lending practices there. So I don't see it lending and particularly non bank lending to be a a short-term occurrence. If anything, I think it's just going to continue to grow and perhaps even resemble elements of the uh, the US system and, and, and in Europe as well for that fact. Um, will there always be a need for participants like ourselves who are you know highly skilled, highly experienced in providing capital and who can move quickly and provide financing um, in a way that's you know attractive from an investor rate of return, I, I don't think that's going away. And secondly, from an investor perspective, you know, will there be a, will there continue to be a need to have a product that delivers strong income but has capital stability elements? I, I can't see that going away. So yes, we need to change and evolve with the market to stay relevant to our investors, but I don't think this type of um, you know, this type of fund and, and the target market we're targeting will be going anywhere. In fact, uh, uh, you know, we are experiencing incredible growth and that's been evident in that sort of six and a half years since we started. Well, Josh, thank you very much for coming onto The Rate of Change and uh, sharing your thoughts with us. And um, I hope you have a great day. Thanks, Murdoch. Thanks for having me. Cheers. expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.